everybody, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and you can find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the NCAA's continuous battle with COVID. We'll give a massive update slash recap on the NBA and what they've got going down. We'll talk about a little NBA news, and we'll have our best for last. And I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty guys, welcome in. And in today's episode, we're going to start off with the NCAA battling COVID-19. Now in last week's episode, I spoke about how I was feeling horrible for the guys who were seniors and wouldn't be able to play again. And even juniors who are know they're going to the draft don't get that full experience of knowing, okay, this is my last season. For instance, guys have pulled out that were sophomores last year that thinking they had one last crack at a championship or one last crack at a conference ring or school record or something like that. But then when COVID hit, they ultimately made a decision to go pro early and to avoid the virus one and to not risk draft stock with a possible injury or soft tissue of some kind, especially if their conference was going to play spring season. They didn't want to risk a soft tissue injury on effectively a meaningless season with it being in the spring. They wouldn't be in the championship race, all of the other stuff. And so I spoke about that. Well, the NCAA heard not necessarily my cries, but they heard cries of players. They saw, especially at the FCS level, about guys who really complained about they wouldn't get a final year. They decided to extend eligibility to seniors. So if you're a junior, you just don't get the extra year as of now. Um, but if you're a senior, so for instance, Zach Von Roseberg at LSU, who's the punter, he get another year. So he'd be 31 when his collegiate career ends and I think he'll be a doctor. So, I mean, it's stuff like that. You've got guys who have missed a couple years of injury and thinking, man, my career is going to end with me getting injured on the field or something. Now, get another chance there. They get a chance to take their rehab slowly. Their year won't count. And now they can rehab fully, maybe even voluntarily sit out if there's a shortened season in the spring or a shortened season in the fall. Sit out of competition because this year won't count towards their eligibility. So, they don't have to risk their health and their bodies attempting to play in a shortened season when they know, okay, I can prepare all fall, all winter, even all spring through practice, summer workouts, and hit it for a real season next fall when we'll have COVID under control. And so that was huge news coming out of the NCAA. I'm glad that they did that because having careers ended. Like I spoke about last week, this isn't basketball. Where basketball, if you never played high school basketball, you never played college ball, obviously you never played in the NBA, G League, anything like that, you can go play basketball in your local rec center. Maybe not during COVID. It might not be the smartest idea. But in theory, you can go play basketball at your local rec or at your local rec center where you can play basketball. You can play the game. The game is accessible to you. There's no pickup football. You're not getting 15 guys together, or in football's case, maybe 14 for seven on seven or 22 if you want to play 11 on 11 real style, you're not getting that together for pickup football games. That's not something that's common. You don't see adult rec leagues for football because usually when a person takes off his helmet in high school for the last time or takes off his helmet in college or retires from professional football, 
he doesn't have a chance to continue to play that sport because that sport just isn't offered. It's too dangerous for a lot of rec leagues to hold, liability, all the other stuff. And a lot of times, man, your body hurts. Football hurts. So not getting paid at all or a substantial amount is not worth the physical abuse of football. And so a lot of guys never pick up a football, nonetheless play it after they've done in high school, college or pro level. And so with basketball, they can do that. So now with the NCAA allowing an extra year of eligibility for all fall sports, namely football, it allows guys last season to not only be on the gridiron, not only be a regular season in terms of what they're accustomed to playing in the fall, but they can have fans because coronavirus should be under control by next fall. So they'll have a full stadium. It'll be back to normal. You'll see football as we know it. Probably won't see it that way this year, but it'll be football as we know it come next season. And so speaking of football in the NCAA, the Big Ten is not on the same page. Honestly, I'm getting confused. Not as confused as I was about the baseball negotiations because that was just frustrating. And not as confused as I was about the original sound of the bubble for the NBA. But this is pretty confusing. Within minutes of each other, the Ohio State Athletic Director and the Big Ten President released statements basically contradicting each other. Because the Big Ten guy was like, there's no chance that we're going to play in the fall. That's off the table. You know, we're not going to look at that. We're paying for a spring season, et cetera, et cetera. And a guy at Ohio State was like, yeah, options are still open. I mean, you still got Justin Fields petitioning to try and play a fall season, getting a ton of signatures, by the way, to try and play in the fall. Because based on life itself, based on the way the rules are set up, and even though the NCAA postponed fall championships until the spring, it didn't affect college football. So whoever lines up starting September 26th for a lot of conferences is going to be eligible for the college football playoff and going to be eligible to claim the national championship in 2020. If you play in the spring, you'll just be playing in the spring. You won't be playing for anything. I mean, unless you're an individual player who's trying to improve draft stock, you don't really have an advantage. I don't see Justin Fields lining up in the spring with the draft being no later than early summer. I don't see a lot of the top talent lining up to play in a spring season for no chance at a championship. The conference championship is cool, but the Hawks already got one of those. They got a lot of those. And Justin Fields has one of those himself. Plus, he's looking at if we start playing football, let's say in December, January, I should be on an NFL draft stage getting a team hat and a jersey with the number one on the back in about June, no later than June. And so is it worth playing in the spring for free, officially, for Ohio State when he can go play for the NFL and just sit and train, get one of these super quarterback trainers and be ready to go from there? So that's always super confusing when you've got schools contradicting the conference. That's another reason why I say college football needs to have a general in charge, a commissioner of college football. It does not apply to the same rules as any other sport in collegiate athletics. And you can see that by the gross number of financial pressure and problems that the NCAA losing college football would cause for individual schools. For instance, LSU put out a report a report was came out that LSU is eligible to lose about $80 million. There's a strong possibility that that's what they'll lose. If there's no football this season, they will lose about $80 million. Now, the school's not going to close. It's not. 
So why can't you pay the players? That's in a different story entirely. But you've got $80 million to lose because of those players, yet when they make the $80 million, there's no money. Interesting. Anyway, so when you've got that kind of pressure, you already saw the NCAA lost over a billion dollars by not having the NCAA tournament and the women's NCAA tournament last year for March Madness. And now you put $80 million strain per, could you say per Power 5 school? I mean... Even if you do $50 million for Power 5 schools, there's 80 of them. So you're looking at $400 million just from that. You're not even counting the loss of bowl revenue. You're not even counting the loss of college football playoff revenue if there's no season. You're not counting the loss of the mid-majors, the non-Power 5, FCS, none of that. You're not counting any of that in your evaluation and you're set to lose 400 million dollars just from power five conferences alone if you say every school is going to lose you know 50 million dollars and so with that kind of financial pressure happening it's not a shock that the sec had hosted a 30 minute show to announce their schedule it's not a shock that the acc is chugging along it's not a shock that the big 12 is powering along because there is no dire situation at the moment that's going to stop these conferences from trudging along now a georgia state qb did come out and say that he was diagnosed with a heart condition in relation to the side effects of covid and that was something that people were concerned about when they said the colleges were going to play is whether the person could contract a heart problem through covid now this Heart problem isn't just COVID related. It happens in all viruses. It can happen with any virus that's out. It's just a concern is with the prevalence of the spread of COVID, could this heart problem pop up more just because COVID is so easily gotten person to person, so easily spread. And so he has to sit out a year to figure out his heart problem to get it under control and to not only continue his football life, but continue his regular life normally. And so we're all rooting for that. But it was a situation where a lot of the presidents were concerned. Obviously, liability played a big part in the cancellation of the season because you do not want to be liable for a heart problem or a health problem, long term effect of COVID 10 years down the line for a player who's not playing for you, especially these universities do not want to be liable for that. You can see that in the professional ranks with the NFL, they don't want to be liable for it either, which is why they struggle a lot of the time giving health benefits to retirees and having a lot of different issues with retired players and health coverage and medical coverage. And so that is a situation to watch with the NCAA. As of now, we've got three power five conferences moving right along. I assume they'll put the three conference champions plus the at-large bid in the playoff if we make it through. But there's a lot of excitement around the South for football. It just matters more. That's just a plain and simple fact. It, football matters a lot more in Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Texas, Oklahoma than it does in California, Oregon, New York, Michigan, and Ohio. Maybe not Ohio. Ohio is pretty football born and red. They're a southern state in the north and it comes stuff like that. But it just may, it just matters more down here. And so when you've got a situation like that, they're going to try and trudge through. Obviously, we'll all be watching to see if they can pull this off. But up next, we'll be shifting to the NBA and what's going down in the bubble.
Alrighty guys, and we are back. Now we're gonna shift to the NBA playoffs. Oh, that feels so, so very great to say. NBA playoffs, and with NBA playoffs back, so are predictions. And when there are predictions, there are times where you are right. Like for instance, I feel very, very right about my Bucks in five, about my Boston in four. However, there are also times where I don't feel as great about a prediction. For instance, I don't feel so great about my Clippers in five. I don't feel so great about my Toronto in six. I don't feel so great about my Denver in six, right? I don't feel great about those. I honestly, I can fly out and admit I was wrong about the Clippers and Mavericks. I was, I was wrong about that. It should be 2-0 Dallas if the referee didn't decide to he wanted to be the star of the game and eject Kristaps Porzingis. It would be 2-0. Yeah, it would be 2-0. That ain't great. Dallas has flat out been outplaying the Clippers when they're all been full strength on the court together. It should be 2-0 Dallas. Paul George looked like George Paul in the words of Skip Bayless. Playoff P. Uh, not that great. I mean, he shot four for 17. It was rough. And he didn't really guard Luka all that well or anybody for that matter. I mean, the Dallas Mavericks at a certain point were just running down the lane, laying the ball up. It was like they were just going down the lane and laying the ball up. Seth Curry stuck a P in his name and got stuff. I mean, they were just raining shots from everywhere. You've got Boban Marjanovic, who has the weirdest genealogy ever, but Boban Marjanovic is everywhere. He's causing havoc. You've got tons of Mavericks players with a lot of energy. I mean, Luka set off for over a quarter and the Mavericks pulled away while he was on the bench. That's not a good sign. Like I said, they were in command of game one. And then Kristaps Porzingis gets ejected for sticking up for his teammate and gets tossed. And the Clippers ultimately win game one. Or this is a 2-0 series and it is absolute panic throughout Clipper Nation and people who expect the Clippers to win the championship. So I'm just going to fight out and say Clippers and five ain't happening. I'm not sure if the Clippers are going to win this series anymore. It's at best going six for the Clippers. Dallas is going to get another game. Dallas might win game three. And with the prevalence of no home court, it's not a flip. So a lot of times when it comes to a series, the best chance for the underdog to steal is game one, game five. When you go back to the home team's home court for the first time or after you've been away for a while, that's your best time to steal is a city change. So game one, game three, game five. That's your best time to steal it. So if it were to happen in a regular playoffs and Chris Dallas gets thrown out in LA and the Clippers win the game and then the Clippers win, probably win game two because now the crowd's into it. Now you've shaken off the rust. Now the crowd can push you through a lull, push you through a bad streak. It could be two old Clippers heading back to Dallas. Vice versa, if let's say everything stays the same, we just add a crowd, you add Staples Center in LA and you add American Airlines in Dallas, Now, Dallas fans are going crazy because they're 1-1 with the Clippers and really, most believe, should be 2-0 if it was not for Porzingis' ejection. And so it changes the dynamics of a series. Now, I think think the Clippers are going to win this in seven. 
because the best player on the floor is still Kawhi Leonard. And so when it comes down to game seven, I go with the best player on the floor, and the best player on the floor is Kawhi Leonard. I think the Clippers are going to win this in seven. It would not shock me if Dallas won this in six or five. It would not shock me in the slightest. So it's definitely keep an eye on that. Houston has come to play. Even without Russell Westbrook, they have come to play. They're up 2-0. I had a Thunder in seven. Yeah, I missed. I'm going to declare that one too. I missed. I had the Thunder in seven. I think Houston, this is over in five. OKC's overachievement and OKC's overachieving, I believe, has just flat out run out. Think about it. The Rockets don't even have their second best player, and they've already beat you twice. Now, again, this isn't a situation like a regular series. Normally, these first two games would be in Houston. No big deal. We just go home, hold, serve, 2-2, get it back to Houston for a game five. Win game five, we're in the driver's seat. Well, it's 2-0, and you just go back to your hotel room and wait to see which court you play on for game three. There's no home court advantage. There's nothing to swing the tide outside of you physically playing basketball. And so when it comes to something like that, you're going to see a lot of series where the dominant team starts and they're just going to finish it because there's nothing to swing it back. There's no playing ride. There's no home court. There's no crowd. There's no external enemies besides the ball and the goal and the potent team you're playing. So I think the Rockets get the thunder out of the bubble in five games. And the reason why I'm not saying a sweep is because I have too much respect for Chris Paul, Billy Donovan, and the rest of that crew in Oklahoma City to say the Rockets sweep them. But if the Rockets sweep them, it wouldn't shock me. I'm going to go Rockets in five there. I'm going to amend that to Rockets in five instead of Thunder in seven. Boston is, I'll hit that on the head. Boston is destroying Philly. I mean, Joel Embiid is trying. You can tell he's trying, but also you can tell that he's looking for the KO punch. He's looking for a blowout game where he can sit and rest. He's tired. He's tired and he's frustrated. He's by himself, effectively, with no Ben Simmons. Tobias Harris and Al Horford can't throw a ball in the ocean standing in a boat. It's rough. I just, it's bad. Embiid's trying, but he's now, he's falling in love with his jump shot again because he's trying to get easy buckets. It's hard to go down low all the time and bang bodies, especially when you know you're the only real big body that the Sixers have, one. Two, you are the best scorer from almost everywhere on the court, and you have the ability to shoot. It's not like Shaq. Shaq couldn't shoot. So Shaq knew if I'm going to score 30 points today, I'm going to have to dunk about 12 times and make six out of my 12 free throws and get to my 30. And B figures, well, I can hit about four or five mid-range jumpers. I can step out and hit a couple threes. Sure, I'll bang down low, but I can get relatively 12 to 14 points without having to physically hurt my body, throw an elbow, get a lot of contact. And so you have a skill set like that. He's going to take eight to 10 jumpers a game. He might make seven. He might make two, but he's going to take eight to 10 because he's looking for a possession. He comes up the court and gets an easy shot. Not necessarily easy percentage shot, but it's not something he had to bang three bodies for of the Celtics in order to try and get two points. He figured he can step out for a three, knock that down, step out for a little turnaround, face up mid-range. He had about three of those in a row. And so he's trying to basically get some KO punches in there, and it's just not working. They don't have enough. Boston's rolling. They don't even have Gordon Hayward for the next four weeks, and they're absolutely rolling right now. Jason Tatum's on fire. Jalen Brown's playing great. 
Marcus Smart's doing Marcus Smart things, not necessarily scoring, but he's giving people a business on defense. And they're going to get rid of Philly in four games. Philly's done. That's over. Yeah, I hit that one on the head. I'm proud of myself for that one. That was that was a that was a knockout punch. It's over. You can see Embiid on the bench, holding his head down, head and hands. He's trying to figure out how fast can I get out of the bubble because this season's over. Now we're gonna transition to the Raptors and the Nets. I got the winner right in Toronto, but I'm gonna miss the games. I had them in six. I'm gonna say it's five. I still think that the Nets can just get hot one game. We've seen it when they play Portland. They can just get really hot offensively, especially Karis LeVert and Joe Harris with those shooters around around Karis. They can get hot. And so I'm going to say they got hot one game. Toronto, foot off the gas, kind of one game. Maybe it's the game four. And Brooklyn takes one, and it's 4-1 Toronto. Toronto's dominating right now. They have the best defense in the bubble, in my opinion, at the moment. They are swapping everything. They're switching like crazy. Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet are dominating as two undersized guards. They are dominating right now in the bubble, specifically in this series. And they have a firm grip and a firm control over it right now. And I think Brooklyn's going to be out of the bubble real soon. Now, the most entertaining matchup so far has been Denver and Utah. We had Donovan Mitchell go for 57, but get outshone by Jamal Murray in the overtime of game one for Denver to take it. And then Donovan Mitchell doesn't slow down in game two, doesn't have 57, but has another big game and they blow Denver off the floor in game two. And so it's 1-1, I had Denver in six. I'm not necessarily super confident in that pick. Mike Conley has been upgraded to probable for game three. So though, so it looks like Utah gets their starting point guard back, which allows Donovan Mitchell to be a little bit more off the ball and a little bit more in attack mindset, going to the goal to score instead of taking three dribbles and then looking for another opponent, looking for a double team, looking to create plays. Now he's just going straight into attack mode. But I'm going to stick with my Denver in six. I like Denver's length. They don't usually shoot that bad two games in a row they've got a lot of tall athletic talent and they still in my opinion have the best player on the floor in Jokic and so when you've got that going for you I'm gonna stick with Denver in six but I don't like that pick too much but I'll roll with it Miami and the Pacers you've got Miami up 2-0 that's done in five Bubba Warren has seemed to cool off it seems that Jimmy Butler's is kryptonite it's just not going to work. You've got the Miami Heat swarming everything. Victor Oladipo isn't back yet. Duncan Robinson's an absolute flamethrower. And you've got a 2-0 series that I think is done in five. So, again, I got the winner right in Miami, but I missed the games. I'm going to say it's going to end in five instead of six. And then the most intriguing matchup in terms of star power, Lakers and Blazers. Now, as we sit right now, it's Blazers are up 1-0. Now in best for last, I'm going to recap the Bucks game and the Lakers game and give recaps of what I think about those games and how do I predict those series going forward. But right now, I mean, the Magic showed out against the Bucks in game one and Blazers showed out against the Lakers in game one. Both number one seeds lost for the first time in over a decade. They go over a decade and a half. And when you look at the Lakers game, they shot five for 32 from three. Yes, LeBron went 
2015 and 15. The first player in NBA history to do that in a playoff game. And it's amazing he got 15 assists because the Lakers team couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. It was bad. If we told them to go throw a ball in the lake in the bubble, they'd probably miss. It was horrible. Five for 32, they hit the side of the backboard, they hit the rim, they hit everything but the bottom of the net. Honestly, I think they hit the bottom of the net one time, just the outside, not the inside. I mean, it was rough. You could tell the frustration level was high on LeBron's face. The shooters were losing confidence in themselves. Anthony Davis tried to get in the party. It just wasn't working. And with the way the Blazers were set up, they were set up with two seven-footers and Whiteside and Nurkic on the court at the same time because they didn't have to guard shooters. Because the Lakers were playing big, they were matching with Dwight Howard, or JaVale, and Anthony Davis, and the shooters weren't making shots. So you weren't pulling the defense away from the goal at all. So Anthony Davis was in a clogged lane. Dwight Howard was in a clogged lane. LeBron was in a clogged lane going to the goal because the shooters weren't making shots. They were kicking it, but to no result. And so in order for the Lakers to win this series, I still believe in them in six, but in order for them to win this series, they're going to have to make obviously more than five threes. I mean, if they go eight for 32, they win the game by two. So they're the worst shooting team in the bubble. They've got to get that corrected in order for them to have a chance in this series because it's not like Portland shot the lights out and won by seven points. They didn't play well either besides Damian Lillard. Melo was inefficient. Nurkic was inefficient, who I think is wearing out. But you see a lot of inefficiencies on the Blazers, and they still won the game. So they're taking a take-no-prisoners mindset. They didn't even celebrate post-game because they know what LeBron is capable of and what Anthony Davis is capable of if they've got supporting help. And so that's going to be very interesting to watch tonight. Milwaukee in the Magic with a shock. I mean, you got a great game out of Giannis numbers-wise. 31-17-7, and and he lost by 10 points. The Bucks defense is not back. It has not been back for months. I know we were off for months for COVID, but they weren't playing that great defensively before the COVID shutdown. And then the bubble, they have not played all that great defensively either. And this is not a very offensively gifted team. You look at Chris Middleton, he's efficient, but he's not a volume scorer by any means. Giannis is very inefficient past eight feet. Eric Bledsoe can score, but he's not really a volume shooter where he gets a bunch of shots up. So when you look at it that way, they need to play great defense in order to win a championship. And right now, they have not been doing that. Now, that could be fixed in tonight's game. And we'll talk about the recap of the Lakers and the Bucks game in best for last. And up next, we'll be shifting to the NFL, what they've got going down there. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to talk about what's going down in the NFL. Training camps are open. Pads are on. Reporters are at practice. It almost feels like regular football is back to normal. It's just a couple months late. But other than that, I mean, it feels completely back to normal. We have quarterback competition in New England. We've got one day Jared Stidham looks bad. He throws three picks and 11 passes. And then the next day, Cam Newton returns the favor and throws a couple of picks himself. Obviously, there's no clear winner in New England. Obviously, the most talented guy in the mix is Cam Newton. But Jared Stidham has two legs up. He has experience in the system, sitting out of last year behind Brady. 
and he has the advantage of no preseason, which means Cam Newton can't get on the field in a game and will a play together that Jared Sims can't do or showcase off any more talent than he already has over Jared Stedham because there's no preseason games and he has to exhibit that in practice. So with Stedham having the advantage in the system, it probably lends itself to Jared Stedham being the week one starter in New England. But with camps open, we've got rookies on the field. All eyes are on Joe Burrow, who is the rookie quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, the number one overall pick. I mean, people are taking two and a half minute walkthrough videos and judging the velocity of his ball. I mean, he's going to be the picked apart prospect of the decade for no reason. It's not like Baker Mayfield came in the league talking a big game, carrying a big shoulder, had the chip on his shoulder in college and all that, and was a nationally polarizing player. People pretty much tend to love Joe Burrow. It's kind of a likable guy. And so the fact that he's going to be picked apart the way he is, I think that's a culture of Cincinnati. I think it's a division he plays in. He plays in a division with Baker, a polarizing player. He plays in a division with Lamar coming into the draft with polarizing, and people still are on the fence about him. He plays in a division with Pittsburgh, one of the more beloved franchises in the sport. But they've got Big Ben. They've got internal issues in themselves in Pittsburgh. And so I think it also comes to being the number one pick. People are going to look for flaws. His junior year was not spectacular at LSU by any means. He was probably a fifth or sixth round pick, if that. And then he has the greatest season by a quarterback ever, and he was the number one overall pick. And so people are going to look to see, hey, is he more his junior year or is he more his senior year? And that's going to be something people are going to pay very, very close attention to. But camps have been open. Camps are great. The only downside to camps, there are injuries. And so one of the biggest additions of the offseason, especially in name value, was Jared McCoy going to the Dallas Cowboys. Unfortunately, he hurt his quad season-ending injury, and it was a pre-existing condition. It was in the language of his contract, and so he was released based on injury waiver from the Cowboys, receiving just his $3 million bonus, which is a good chunk of money. But he is on the market. He's a street for agent. And now he's not even rehabbing under a team's guidance. He's rehabbing on his own because he was released. Now, that was smart business by the Cowboys. I mean, you don't want to be held up with a roster spot, with the IR spot, especially with how they may bounce IR COVID people back and forth. You may be able to bring more people back this season. And so that being said, you don't want to tie up into a pre-existing condition, an IR spot, in case you may need it for a player to go down for eight weeks or so and to bring him back. And so that was smart by them putting it in the contract. Jared McCoy pretty much probably figured, hey, my quad holds up, this doesn't matter. So there's no big deal. And unfortunately the quad goes on him. And so he's on the, he's a street free agent. And ultimately the Cowboys free up a roster spot and save a good chunk of money. Now it's gonna be an interesting football season. I would say the Chiefs are the favorite. They're returning 21 of 22 starters, and the 22nd starter is an upgrade, in my opinion. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire over Damian Williams. You've got Andy Reid calling him an upgraded Brian Westbrook. You've got rookie of the year talks, especially with how teams are probably going to spread so thin trying to stop the passing game that he should get one-on-one opportunities a lot against linebackers in the passing game. He should get holes in the running game. And with no Damian Williams, there's nobody to really split carries. And so it'll be a situation where Clyde Edwards-Hilaire gets a ton of work. You got Tua Tagovailoa on the field in Miami. Ryan Fitzpatrick's going to start. 
That's just plain and simple because there's no preseason. There's no opportunity to work to a in-game motion to see him work and to give him an extended four, five, six-month period to get himself ready to roll to start week one. And so Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to start in Miami. I don't think that's really much of a decision for Brian Flores and that coaching staff, but you never know. And so you've got Justin Herbert, who's been on hard knocks with the Chargers. You tell that's Tyrod Taylor's team, but Justin Herbert's trying to get there and to get a leadership role in the organization, but he's going to have to work hard for that. And you got a veteran like Tyrod Taylor who has the command of the offense, command of the team, and the trust of the coaching staff. It's going to be a hard job to come in and try and be a leader and to try and be a very vocal person when it comes down to that team. And so it's going to be very interesting to watch. Jordan Love is starting to assert himself in Green Bay, even though Aaron Rodgers is still there. And so you've got all these different storylines in practice. It's not the usual what we get with preseason. You know, if Aaron Rodgers comes out three series, no points. Jordan Love comes in three touchdowns in a row. Controversy, controversy city. We won't get that. And so it'll be a few storylines we won't usually get through the season based on, you know, COVID uh, precautions and having no preseason. So that's big advantage veteran-laden teams. That's big advantage teams returning a lot of starters. And that's big advantage veterans in competition with young guys because they know the system. They know the league. They know how to prepare their bodies. But football is close. We are so close to regular season football. I just hope they can pull this off without a stream COVID outbreak. Baseball is struggling a little bit. Their positives get way more covers than their negatives. But baseball is struggling a little bit. But hopefully football can pull it together and get it together. And it's so close. I can practically hear pads clacking right now. So it's going to be amazing. I cannot wait. And up next, we're going to shift to our best for last, which is going to be the recap of the Bucks game versus the Magic in their game two. And a recap of the Lakers versus the Trailblazers in their game two. Alrighty guys, and we are back for best for last, which is going to be a recap of the top seeds in their games. Well, the top seeds are back. The Bucks Tour de Force was back, and the Lake Show was gunning and running at full speed. You saw when you looked at Milwaukee, their transcendent defense, that defense that has carried them all series, was back in full force. Now, the Magic are still shorthanded. They did not play again with Aaron Gordon, and they did not play again with Michael Carter-Williams. But you can see that the Bucks were playing intense defense. Giannis seemed to be back, even pulling off one of his signature spin dunks. And when he had all the energy in the world afterwards, it was great to see Giannis back at full force. And then you look at a Magic team that may have played over their skis in game one, but the Magic can look at it at the same time and go, man, we got a game off the Bucks." one of the championship favorites without our best player on the floor and Aaron Gordon and without Michael Carter Williams, who's a pretty solid defender. And then you've got Nikola Vucevic still giving you 30 and 10, a little bit over that on average in game one and two. And then Aaron Gordon comes back. Well, clearly if they're struggling with Vucevic, they're going to have a problem with Vucevic and Gordon. And so the Magic are probably sitting there like, hey, if Gordon comes back for game three and then we have a healthy Aaron Gordon, we might make this a series after all and not just get swept out in five. But do I feel good about my prediction for the Bucks in five? Yeah, that was that was kind of brutal. And game two wasn't great. 
But at the same time, again, the Magic were shorthanded. And so we'll see if Aaron Gordon comes back and we'll see how they're able to survive that series. But if you look at how the Bucks play, just projecting forward a little bit, they're scheduled to play the Heat. If the Heat hold on and beat the Pacers, they've got the Heat in round two. And when you got a situation where you're playing a Miami Heat team who likes shooting threes, evident of Duncan Robinson yesterday, that they're going to struggle guarding the pick and roll because of how they guard the pick and roll. The Bucks usually drop all the way back into the paint. They sink about as far as they can get to protect the rim. And so if you've got a good mid-range pull-up jump shooter or a guy who's good, comfortable shooting behind a screen or around the screen, they're going to have an opportunity to get their shots off fairly uncontested because the Bucks again, are protecting the rim. And so it's going to be very interesting to watch to see if the Bucks maybe try out a different pick and roll defense while they're playing the Magic, a team they're better than, and that they can try stuff out against. And now shifting to the late game, Lakers and Trailblazers, the Lake show was back. LeBron, so quiet night. It looked very passive, LeBron, and I predicted that going in. I predicted that he would be a little passive, and most people were, you know, clamoring, okay, LeBron got to go 45, LeBron got to go get 40 to really put a dominance on the Trailblazers, and that was not a typical LeBron moment. Usually if his shooters struggle in one game, he's willing to sacrifice a game, even two games. We've seen it over his career where he was in Miami. He'd sacrifice a regular season game, even a playoff game versus an overmatched opponent to get a guy like Chris Bosh rolling. Or he'll sacrifice a playoff game. He did it a lot in Cleveland. He'll sacrifice the game to make sure that Kevin Love was ready to roll by the time the important games really came. And so you look at it this way, he sacrificed game one to try and do his absolute best to get the shooters rolling in game one. And then last night, he didn't have to sacrifice the game, but he was willing to, to make sure Anthony Davis played aggressively, which AD came out rolling. Portland is being tied down that they haven't been since they've entered the bubble. Basically, they've got the six lowest scoring quarters in the eight quarters they've played against the Lakers, and they scored under 23 points six times in eight quarters. That is tremendous defense from the Lakers. Portland had a scare last night. Damian Lillard, I thought initially he broke his finger, but it came out that it was dislocated and that the x-rays were negative. But playing every other day, even though it's just dislocated and it's on his non-shooting hand, that's an annoying injury. And so when you've got a guy who's used to ball handling the ball the way he does, shooting those long distance threes, you're going to need full operation of your fingers. Obviously, it's basketball. And so when that happens, you're looking at maybe a dame now that's 80%. So you're looking at a Lakers team that's heated up. LeBron did not play well at all. And the team blew you out the door. Now your best players have a nagging injury on his shooting, on his non-shooting hand. And so what chance do the Blazers have to get another game? Now I do have faith in the Blazers. I do have faith in my pick of Lakers and six because I think there is a game where Dane might just go get 55 because the Lakers do not have great defending guards, especially with Rondo still not back yet. And just projecting forward a little bit with them, odds are they're going to play the Houston Rockets. Houston already has a 2-0 lead, and they haven't even have their best, their second best player, rather, and Russell Westbrook back. And so when you've got a situation like that, those two are their best guards. Now, Lakers match up pretty decently against the Lakers because Anthony Davis can play the quote-unquote five in that situation and then put him on P.J. Tucker and just let P.J. Tucker shoot corner threes. If P.J. Tucker makes eight corner threes and the Rockets win, tough. I mean, there's just not not much else you can do. But even then, they can play two bigs because you can put 
there's time the Rockets are running Jeff Green and P.J. Tucker, you can have JaVale and Anthony Davis. Just have Anthony Davis on Jeff Green. P.J. Tucker's getting guarded by JaVale, but same principle. Let P.J. Tucker shoot all the corner threes his heart desires and still maintain the ability to close off the lane when James Harden and Russell Westbrook ultimately decide to probe. Because as I said a few minutes ago, the Lakers' guards are not defensive. Danny Green can't guard a lawn chair. KCP's never been known for his great defense. Rondo will be back by then. But Danny, I mean, when you got guys like Danny Green, Kyle Kuzma's trying to play defense. He can play a little bit, but he's a taller, not really mobile in terms of defensively. And so you're struggling there to guard Harden and Russ, keeping them out of the paint. You're going to need an Anthony Davis with a foot in the paint. JaVale McGee with a foot in the paint. I'm not sure how the matchup works for Dwight Howard. He'll probably have to be on the court by himself because they'll probably switch him around and get him on guards. But other than that, they match up pretty decently against Houston. They'll have to obviously attack the paint and destroy the paint in order to really keep it close because of how the volume that Houston shoots threes. But back to the number one seeds, they showed their dominance. They showed why they were the number one seeds. And so they both got their series knotted up at one apiece. And that will conclude today's episode. I'm enjoying doing this. This is episode 20. It's going really, really fast. I did not think 20 episodes would feel this easy and feel this great. And so I thank you guys for all the support. You can find me on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes and Spotify. And follow the Twitter at JTime Sports for breaking news, updates, and coverage all in one place. And you guys have a great day.